You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold. All right, folks. Let's continue here. It says candidates would be required to build and maintain as completely as possible a cover story for himself. Claiming to have been born somewhere he wasn't, to have gone to school and educated in an institution other than those he had attended, to have been engaged in work or profession different to his own, and to live now in a place that was not his true residence. The cover story was to be maintained with staff and students alike at all times, except under when speaking to cadre members for the purposes of assessment. The candidates could reveal anything about themselves except their names. And, okay, folks, hold on one second. This thing just bounced again on me. It's got these uh, ads running on this site. Um that uh, they keep changing size. For those of you that are not watching over at pain.tv slash gold, so the, the website bounces up and down. It says the candidates could reveal anything about themselves except their names and true identities. During the assessment cycle, this was the first test of what, of what would become the real-world test of living undercover abroad in a foreign country that may be under enemy control. The candidates were rated on several key factors, which included motivation, practical intelligence, emotional, stability, social relations, leadership, physical ability, observation and reporting, propaganda skills, and maintaining cover. Each factor was rated on a six-point scale. Very inferior, inferior, low average, high average, superior, and very superior. Now, uh, we were operating this out of what's uh, called the CIA's farm, and then this actually grew to bases all over the United States and then around the world, actually. Um, And they used this to select double agents and, and all kinds of stuff, folks. I mean, it spread far and wide. And as we know, it's actually used inside of companies now to help select managers. Oh, yeah, the old HR department. I have to look. When you go to college to be in HR, this is probably what you're trained with. goes on to say, in addition, candidates were assessed in other factors as well. Motivation, which is energy, effort, initiative, morale, Practical intelligence, which is speed and accuracy of judgment, resourcefulness in solving problems, emotional stability, that's emotional control and maturity, the absence of neurotic symptoms, would be social relations, which is social awareness, goodwill, teamwork, tact, the absence of annoying traits, leadership, which is social initiative, organizing ability, ability to evoke cooperation, physical ability, which is agility, Daring, ruggedness, stamina, uh, observation and reporting, ability to search, question, observe, and recall, infer, and report. Propaganda skills, the ability to afflict others through acts, words, or displays. Maintaining cover, which is caution, ability to remain inconspicuous, bluff, mislead, keep a secret. All right, so this is probably used to select, uh, you know, not just managers. This is probably how they select 
politicians, all the Manchurian candidates they've planted that are agents of the Rockefeller crime family. Goes on to say, one of the more intriguing tasks given to candidates was the map memory test. In this test, the candidate had to assume that he is an operative in the field and that he has just made a secret face-to-face meeting with a courier who has a map of the territory that the agent will be operating in. After a few minutes, the courier must leave with the map, and since it would be dangerous for the agent to have it, he must memorize it. After eight minutes to examine the map, it is taken away, and the candidate answers a set of multiple-choice statements about the terrain shown on the map. Back when I was a cadre in selection, we came across this, and several of the cadre members as well as candidates took the test in one of our first selection courses in SFAS. Uh, Other tests given to OSS candidates included the Brook situation, This is similar to many of the tasks that SFAS candidates face in today's course during what is now termed Team Week. The leaderless situation is now more apt to current selection tasks than when the courses first began in the 1980s. There, a group of candidates were asked to cross a 15-foot wide stream that the candidates were told to be a canyon. They are given a log which is said to be a delicate piece of equipment that they must carry over the canyon uh, canyon and return with a rock. The rock was to be considered to be explosives. The must-carry log across returned with rock and all members of the group. They were not permitted to jump, but were asked to solve the problem as a group. They were given 10 minutes to generate a plan. No one was named the leader, so there was the opportunity to take leadership and interact as a member of the team. It says here the candidates were assessed on the following criteria. One, number of different suggestions offered. Uh, Number two, working as a member of a team. Number three, volunteering for unpleasant tasks. Number four, insight into the problems. Number five, evaluation of proposed suggestions. Number six, tact in responding to suggestions by other team members. Number seven, sense of humor. Number eight, guiding of others to a solution. Number nine, organizing the workers into a team. And number 10, combining ideas from others. Now, you have to ask yourself, folks, were they doing this to uh, select, develop techniques to select intelligence officers or were these techniques being developed, you know, under our government with funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, techniques to select warriors uh, for the secret brotherhood of the Rockefellers? I, I seriously ask myself that because... It honestly makes a lot of sense. You want to find people that uh, don't question authority, that are going to be soldiers, soldiers in your personal bankster army, uh, the bankster crime family. Goes on to say the, uh, and remember, this is Henry Murray, the guy who messed with Ted Kaczynski's mind at Harvard is the guy who developed this. Goes on to say the wall situation. This was another leaderless evaluation. Candidates were led to a wall, 10 foot high, 15 foot long. Behind the wall, which the candidates could see, was another wall of the same height and length parallel to it. The two walls being eight feet apart. On the candidate's side of the wall, there was a heavy log, an old board a few inches longer than the log, and a couple of two by fours, two feet and three feet in length. 
The candidates were told this wall was a barrier they could not go around or see around. Furthermore, behind this wall was a canyon, and on the other side was another wall. The situation is that they were trying to escape from Japanese soldiers and must figure out how to get the entire team to the other side, carrying their bazooka, which was an oversized log. Any item or person that fell between the walls was lost. Solving the problem was required, getting quickly to the top of the wall to assess the situation and determining a way to measure the gap with the tools that were available in order to decide what could be used to cross it. Smart leaders quickly realized the best wall climbers had to go first and last to assist the other team members up and across the wall and any apparatus built. The wall was assessed to the same as the brook. Uh, they have one called the construction situation. This was a test of emotional stability as well as a test of working with others outside of the team. In this scenario, a candidate was given the task of constructing a basic wooden structure within 10 minutes. The candidate was to serve as the leader and given two helpers who were anything but. This was also known as behind the barn test. One was lazy and wanted to do as little as possible. The other was more aggressive and criticized everything the leader did. The task was to measure how a candidate handled stress and working with less than ideal others who were assigned. The candidate had to explain the task and give specific instructions to each of the helpers while maintaining a cool composure and keeping the helpers on task without resorting to doing it himself. Goes on to say the stress interview. This assessment was one of the most important of all their tests. OSS operatives faced the danger of being arrested and interrogated by members of the Gestapo in occupied Europe. This small, short test was designed to see who could possibly withstand the emotional and intellectual strain of being interrogated. Candidates were given 12 minutes to develop a cover story for why the candidate was found going through secret papers in a government office building. They would have no identification papers and could not pretend to be an employee. They were not permitted to answer either I don't know or I am not permitted to disclose and had to answer every question. They had to avoid revealing prior personal occupations, residents, etc. The stress interview lasted only 10 minutes and had the candidate sitting in a hard, uncomfortable chair in a dark room with a light shining in his eyes. The candidate would be subjected to multiple interrogators shouting rapid-fire questions at him. At the end of this specific assessment, the cadre would whisper among themselves that the candidate failed the test to watch for any telltale signs. He or she would then be led out of the room, and a cadre member would, be, uh, would in a relaxed tone, try to pry any more information out of him. The cadre performed other assessments as well and then asked candidates to run an obstacle course at the end of the second day to test their physical attributes. The cadre was looking for an ideal candidate who was a, quote, PhD who can win a bar fight, end quote. Before they could sharpen the assessment program, the war ended and OSS was disbanded. Don't worry, we perfected it. Goes on to say, however, the same people who founded CIA and the U.S. Army Special Forces dusted off their assessment programs for OSS and used many of the same assessment programs that continue to this day in different forms, but essentially still looking for the ideal candidates to continue the mission of the unit 
and weed out the unsuitable. All right. As I said now, this program, uh, this protocol, this psychological protocol is used now in companies to help select managers. It's used in a lot more situations as well, folks. So uh, that is one of Dr. Henry Murray's major contributions to society that is still alive today, folks. So it's not like we're reading about a guy born, um, you know, over 100 years ago, you know, died, what, 30 years ago, uh, who doesn't matter. No, his work is alive and well in what is going on today, and this guy was an agent, an agent of the Rockefellers, folks. All right, when I get back, I'm going to show you a little bit of stuff on MK Ultra and the overlap of Henry Murray's work with what was going on at MKUltra. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. My name is Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, we're not going to do a whole uh, a whole study here into uh, MKUltra. We've covered MKUltra, all of the official stuff that has been revealed to the general public on past shows. But here's the thing. We know that MKUltra was going on between really 1953 and 1973. It was headed up by chief chemist at the CIA, Sidney Gottlieb, all right, under the supervision of the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. All right, now, some of the official narrative folks will tell you that it actually ended in the mid-60s. Then others will say 1973. I say MKUltra never actually ended. I think we've been able to prove that here. Uh, I mean, it just operates under a different name, but all the psychedelic experiments and the virtual reality, augmented reality, EEG headsets, all this stuff going on that we're testing on veterans in the um, in the military hospitals, you know, et cetera, et cetera, folks. It's, it's still going on. It's still going on. Uh, and you can go back and listen to those episodes on MKUltra if you want to. But let me show you. This was an article over here that we had actually reviewed during the MKUltra discussions on the Dust and Gold Standard. This is at NPR.org. And this was an interview. I believe we actually, we did. We analyzed this 37-minute podcast. And this was an article written and an interview conducted by Terry Gross at NPR with doctor, I'm sorry, with journalist Stephen Kinzer, who I, I showed you guys. This guy is just an official narrative propagandist. But anyway, Kinzer is going through all of the documents that had been declassified by the government. And as I mentioned earlier, many of these things were destroyed by Sidney Gottlieb, okay, and by 
under the direction of Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA at the time. Later, Dulles left, and then Sidney Gottlieb uh, was under the direction. I think it was it was it might have been Richard Helm. Um, who ended up uh, overseeing the CIA and continued the program and everything. Um, so this is the part, though, that's important right now. A lot of folks would say that it cannot be proven that Henry Murray's experiments from 1959 to 1962 at Harvard, when he was playing around with Ted Kaczynski's brain, uh, were directly connected to mk ultra but i just want to show you this because again this is kinzer who is out there to push the official narrative so this is what the government admits to it says here in the early 1950s uh sydney gottlieb arranged for the cia to pay two hundred and forty thousand dollars to buy the world's entire supply of lsd he brought this to the united states and he began spreading it around to hospitals clinics prisons and institutions asking them through bogus foundations to carry out research and projects and find out what lsd was how people reacted to it and how it might be able to be used as a tool for mind control so you see this part here it says we spread this around to hospitals, clinics, prisons, and other institutions, asking them through bogus foundations. And so this whole thing, I, I did uh, further research on this, right? So Sidney Gottlieb was setting up bogus foundations, all right, to spread CIA money into not just hospitals, clinics, prisons, and institutions, but also universities. That's admitted to, all right? So we know this is going on somewhere between um, um, 1953 and 1973. Well, I started doing some research, and I want to share this with you. Uh, this is from the Crimson.com. This is the Harvard Crimson, and it says CIA financial links. There's no uh, author attributed to this. This is written in April 15, 1967. And it says, Humphrey Dorman's report on CIA financing gave the university a clean bill of health, almost. Dorman, assigned by Dean Ford to investigate possible CIA influence, told the faculty Tuesday that Central Intelligence Agency, this is Harvard admitting this, Central Intelligence Agency, quote, conduit, end quote, foundations, uh, sounds a lot like bogus foundations, that Sidney Gottlieb was setting up, conduit foundations have channeled $456,000 into the university from 1960 to 1966. All right, so this is Harvard admitting, all right, so you know it's more than 456000 but it's Harvard admitting that the CIA was funneling money into the university. It says conduit foundations unlike so-called dummy organizations, do not receive all of their money from the CIA, and therefore there is no proof that the agency's dollars actually went to the university. There were no strings attached to the aid, so the government could not directly influence research or prevent its results from being published. All right. So what they're saying is we admit to the fact that the CIA was giving us money, but they bundled it with other money. So we don't know if they gave us money directly and they definitely didn't have control 
over what we were doing. No, none of the professors there actually worked for the CIA either. No, no, no. Of course, of course, you've got Henry Murray there running the psychology department who had helped develop the protocol for selecting intelligence uh, um, agents for the OSS, which later became the CIA. That guy's a professor there, right? So come on. He works for the CIA, he's a professor, and the CIA is funneling money in. But you're telling me the CIA has no control over what's going on? Of course the CIA has control. The guy who runs the psychology department is the CIA. Come on, folks. This is so obvious. It's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's boring to have to sit here and point this out. It goes on, yet, despite the belief of many professors that the CIA has had no voice in Harvard projects, this financial link was potentially dangerous. The degree of control the CIA exercised over the conduits is unknown, and there is no absolute guarantee that the agency was not able to influence research, subject matter, and personnel through the officials of these foundations. Right. So you'd set up a foundation, put CIA money in there. Now, the conduit foundation right, is sitting there telling Harvard what they can do with the money, what programs they could run, what experiments they can do. So, of course, the CIA, what do you think? They just uh, wrote a blank check to the foundation. They go, do whatever you want to do with this. Of course, it was about control. I just showed you that the CIA was working with the Ford Foundation, using the Ford Foundation to go into these Western Europe countries and force American mass production and mass consumption on them. Goes on to say, Dean Ford has observed that in the future, the faculty may have to decide whether it will take funds from the Central Intelligence Agency for clearly specified unclassified research. When that question arises, he told his colleagues the faculty should not try to make blanket classifications of government agencies as to acceptably of their funds. Uh, as to the acceptability of their funds. Rather, it should appraise the individual terms of each grant proposal. <laughs> Comical. It says the CIA may indeed make more use of direct and open grants to the university now that the President Johnson has forbidden the agency to work through the conduits. Okay, so you've got uh, Johnson saying that they can't work through conduits. They have to give the money directly now. Goes on to say, but if the formula for government aid to academic projects is now to be open, it is unlikely that the CIA, by its secret of nature, would make such grants. Well, we know that's not true because the CIA works openly with many universities now, including MIT, where they go in and they actually recruit people to become intelligence agents. Goes on to say, if it should offer Harvard a grant for some specific work, Ford's proposal makes good sense. It would allow the university to determine at the time whether the terms of the CIA's offer did not undermine the credibility of Harvard as a haven for disinterested academic research. In any case, where, uh, where the university refused to accept CIA research grants, the shadowy agency would have little trouble channeling its offers through another agency. Okay, now, again, this is written April 15, 1967. I'm just pulling this up to prove some stuff to you here. Now, we're going to fast forward 10 years. Again, this is on the Harvard Crimson, Harvard site. It says right here, this is by Joseph uh, Contreras, September 28, 1977. It says here, CIA papers link Harvard to mind control project. Uh, 
classic, folks. Classic. It says the Central Intelligence Agency informed university officials this week that Harvard, quote, was involved in one way or another, end quote, in two research projects conducted under the agency's MKUltra Human Behavior Control Project. Daniel Steiner, 1954 general counsel to the university, said yesterday. Steiner said the university received substantial financial records from the CIA outlining Harvard's involvement in the controversial mind control program. He refused to release any details about the documents yesterday, but said the two research projects in question did not include any drug experimentation. The CIA secretly operated the MKUltra Research Project for 12 years, beginning in the 1950s, to study the effects of alcohol and various narcotics on winning and unwitting human subjects at a number of American universities and colleges. I love how they say that. Alcohol and various narcotics. They never say psychedelics, LSD. Of, of course, at this time, everyone knows that Timothy Leary is there running LSD experiments underneath Henry Murray, and Henry Murray is running mind-bending experiments on these unwitting uh, minors. goes on to say, the New York Times reported last month that the CIA had sponsored a separate series of hallucinogenic drug experiments conducted during the 1950s at a Harvard-affiliated teaching hospital. The test studied the effects of LSD on students from Harvard and other Boston-area universities. It says Steiner said his office will spend, quote, a week to 10 days, end quote, studying the set of CIA documents before releasing the materials to the public. He added that he does not yet know whether the two research projects linked to the MKUltra program involved a contract with Harvard or a consulting relationship with an individual affiliated with the university. Steiner said the CIA first notified him of Harvard's connection with the Mind Control Project in a letter received in late August. Steiner said he requested documents concerning Harvard's involvement with the MKUltra program earlier this month, and the agency sent him the materials a few days ago, end quote. In a related development... Spokesman for the campaign to stop government spying announced yesterday that the group has mailed letters to the presidents of 42 American colleges and universities urging them to follow the lead of President Bach in adopting guidelines which would prevent secret CIA work on college campuses. Bach announced guidelines regulating the CIA's dealings with Harvard on May 20th. Yeah, okay, like that's going to stop him. Says Linda Lotz, a spokesman for the Washington-based organization, said yesterday the letter dated September 12th has already elicited written responses from two college presidents whom she declined to identify. She added that the organization's staff will follow up on the letters by calling the 42 university presidents later this week. Lott said the group advises concerned university heads to invoke the Freedom of Information Act to request the CIA to supply all of its documents that relate to their universities. John Marks, a staff member at the Center for National Security Studies, who is writing a book on the MKUltra project, said yesterday the extent of Harvard's involvement has not been fully disclosed. Marks filed a lawsuit against the CIA earlier this year that helped trigger the recent series of disclosures about the MKUltra program. Well, folks, there you go, right? I told you, Henry Murray has three things that uh, should have been in his eulogy, folks. He was the guy responsible for creating 
the assessment protocol of men, of women, of leaders for the Rockefellers through the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, responsible for running MKUltra mind control experiments at Harvard University, including on Ted Kaczynski, and big on pushing the World Federalist Society and the World Constitution, this idea of a one-world government. We're going to get to that when I get back from this short break, ladies and gentlemen. I shall return. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. 